Last week on Unforgotten. In the depth of a chilling March night at Redstone Arsenal, Army Specialist Chad Langford was found bound, gagged, and fatally shot near his My name's Michael bar. Fleming. I'm a private investigator in the state of Alabama, and I am the quiet half of <laughs> Secret Service. <laughs> Chad basically joined the Army right out of high school, grew up in Northern California, joined the Army to be a military police officer. They referred to Chad as a hard charger. I call somebody a hard charger. They are someone that I can depend on. That I can When he finished them. his tour in Korea, he got orders back to Alabama to Redstone Army. Chad had told them before he joined the Army, he was in a gang in California. Says he totally changed his crowd of friends. I heard he had a lot of enemies there when he died. Is it possible that he could have gotten himself in trouble and he, this was the way he so was So somewhere along this path after he got back to Alabama, something just really kind of shifted him off course, it sounds like. I would say something happened in January or February that he was acting out. Hey everyone, this is Sellers. And this is Stormy. And And this this is is Unforgotten. Where each episode will highlight unsolved missing, murdered, and suspicious death cases in Alabama in order to raise awareness and hopefully obtain some answers for victims and their families. Please remember that any individual referenced in the podcast should be considered innocent until found guilty in a court of law, and any opinions or views expressed in the podcast are solely those of participants. Listener discretion is advised, as some of the content discussed in the podcast may contain violence or graphic descriptions and may not be suitable for all audiences. Be sure to join our Unforgotten Patreon channel today to gain exclusive benefits, including early access to ad-free episodes and bonus content. By subscribing, you'll also be supporting the efforts of ACCA in assisting families in raising awareness for Alabama cold cases. Join us as we continue our conversation with Michael Fleming from Echo 7 Foxtrot slash Secrets True Crime, discussing the tragic death of Army Specialist Chad Langford at the Redstone Arsenal base in Huntsville, Alabama. If you haven't listened to the previous episode, we recommend doing so, as we delved into Chad's background, his military history, the noticeable changes in his behavior reported by friends and family, and recent events that may have triggered those changes. It will provide valuable context for our discussion. And now for Specialist Chad Langford, Part 2. There's another aspect that I I think comes out, uh, and it's something that I skipped over when I was reading what Roxanne told the investigators initially about the breakup, she said that Chad had a lot that he said to her about dying when they broke up. That's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Because that's not really, that doesn't sound mutual. That's not really topics that come up when you have a mutual breakup. No. No, I agree with that. There were, there were some other people that were interviewed that had similar stories about Chad talking about, you know, he, Felt like something was going to happen. He was going to get killed. You know, 
I want to read you this part that I skipped over from Roxanne. She was interviewed 23 March, so not not too long after mm-hmm. the death. And this is, I already read part of this where she talked about, you know, it was a mutual breakup. She says, Langford continued to talk about death, told her that if you live to get old, you get wrinkled and have arthritis problems. She said that he also said that if you die young and live life in the fast lane, then you enjoy life. To the fullest. Hmm. Yeah. I don't really know what to think about that because it almost seems like ironic foreshadowing. Maybe his confidence was really high, you know, as far as how he looked because it was the wrinkles and things that bothered him about getting older. So maybe like he was okay, like his confidence in his physical traits was fine. He looks at being old. As you have wrinkles and arthritis, there's issues, health issues there. But young and living in the fast lane dangerously, that has nothing to do with his appearance. That's behaviors. But he's looking at being old. The downside to being old is your looks change. And how you remember. True. Yep. And it sounds like he's already kind of explaining he knows what's coming up, whether it's at his own hand or somebody else's. And and that's that's where I think that, you know, all, all of these, these serial phone calls that he's making all day could be dual purpose. It could could be like you mentioned, you know, hey, look, I'm going about my daily routine. There's nothing unusual. I do this mm-hmm. all the time. Everyone makes fun of me for being on the phone all the time. But also, I'm saying goodbye without saying it. Because he does try to call Roxanne. Didn't she initially say he didn't call her? Uh, that Maybe. I don't, I don't remember. I can't remember it. if I, I read that. He didn't call his dad or his girlfriend, but maybe it was just that he didn't call his grandmother because they said he called coworkers, I think, and told them goodbye. Right. So, yes, that was that was in a report that actually I, I think I think I read that he sent goodbye letters. To people like mail them. Yeah. That would be uh, really strange. The report from CID indicates that that they were not able to locate any of those. No one ever said Chad called and said goodbye or or sent a letter and said goodbye or anything like that. So that's almost like something that was just kind of made up for the media. I I would. Just about it. Or maybe that, I think his dad was one of the ones that said that, but maybe that's what he had been told. The new MP guy changes clothes, comes back outside. Langford's not sitting there waiting on him anymore. Mm -hmm. So the new guy walks down the hill to the MP station, uh, does a few things on his way out of the police station. He sees Langford coming in. And Langford just kind of in passing um, tells him, hey, I've got to make a phone call. Um, You know, I'll be right back out. And the new guy, um, quick wit, I think, because he's like, uh, you know, I don't even work here yet. And I needed to go and do this, this other thing. So he doesn't wait. Yeah. He leaves um, while Langford is still in, in the, in the station. But who's he called? Because he doesn't call anybody while he's in there. 
Yeah. Or not that anybody's come forward and said they talked to him anyway. Yeah, not that anyone came forward. That's interesting. Because the last call he is the six o'clock call where he talks to the A and M girlfriend, and they make plans to see each other at eleven thirty. Is that just to be visible on radars? He's walking all around. I mean, he's all over this base. It looks like he's driving or yeah. But I mean, that's where he works. You know, that's the well, station. I feel like he's purposefully interacting with people. Well, yeah, that's what I mean. If did he stop at the station with that purpose, yeah. just to be visible at the station to make sure? Gotcha. Mm-hmm. And of course, we wouldn't we wouldn't have the time hacks that we have if earlier in the day he had gone to the south end of the base where where the bunkers and stuff are. Mm-hmm. Because it's it's off season for the recreation area. There there's nobody out there, you know, fishing or anything. There's, I mean, it's really, it's no man's land out there. So if he had gone out there, we may not know about it. But looking at the time frames where he did interact with people, either via telephone or he saw that staff sergeant in the billeting area and told him about you know, being denied airborne school, looking at the times, if he did go to one of the remote parts of the base, it was, it was there and back there. I mean, he didn't have time to go down there and hang out or do a whole lot. So this looks to me like another deviation all day. He's been what, what I grew up calling main side. He's, he's, in the core of the base where the most people are, where the most activity is, mm-hmm. the PX is there. That, I, that was actually what I was about to ask you is, um, did you know, do you know where all these earlier phone calls took place? Like which pay phones they came off of? Because was he basically in that same central area, at least from one thirty on? Yeah, I, I don't have that information yet. Um, I do know that they, that they ran um, the phone history through the phone company to determine, you know, who was being called at these times from this phone. Um, and it, it's one in one of the exhibits, but I, I don't have that information. The only information I have right now is about that uh, 8 p.m. call at the civilian recreation area. I do have that they confirmed that that's where that phone call was. And, you know. But do they know the girlfriend from A&M actually talked to him? I, I believe they do. Just based on what she said? No, because she originated the call. Yeah, well, I guess my point on that is if he wasn't over there and somebody else answered the phone. Because if you look at this from outside perspective not trying to get pigeonholed into it's this it's definitely suicide but that somebody potentially did this it's got to be i feel like somebody he would maybe have known would somebody have a reason to lie potentially um i I feel like and and i've considered this uh, i think there's a possibility if there is someone else involved i would not be surprised that the purpose of Langford going to the civilian recreation area 
was to meet that person. Gotcha. And I believe with the stories that his father has been told, that his father would probably accept that theory um, because it, I mean, it, it is similar to some of the information that Chad told him in the months prior, you know, about these, you know, he could only contact his handler at certain times and in certain places and, and mm-hmm. you know, this covert thing going on. I would, so I would definitely say um, if there is someone else involved that Chad may have known that there was a meeting plan that he was supposed to be at the recreation area at eight o'clock, 8 PM. And that the potential was that that meeting would not go in his favor. He may have wanted his girlfriend to call him there to maybe prevent that. As an interruption type thing. Yeah. Well, this is what was on the timeline that like, and maybe it's not completely, completely accurate, but it says, the A&M girlfriend contacts his pager at, what time is 20? Eight. Eight. So she says she hasn't heard from him by 8.30, but she contacts him at 8, then immediately gets a message saying, call him on this civilian recre- civilian recreation area payphone. Right. And he says, I'll see her. I'll see you at 1130. Yep. Oh, I think maybe it's because I did. How does that happen so fast? Like, is that just a guesstimate on time? Um, no, if it's, if I estimated the time I put in their approximate time. So. Because you think in, in the matter of a minute, he gets a pager or he gets paged, he calls the desk, because I'm assuming he's not at the desk. I think he may have been in in the station. So he calls her from the station and is like, oh, call me on this payphone? Why doesn't he call her from the payphone? They must have done that over the radio, because he would not, I mean, it'd take him 10 or 15 minutes. That's what I was thinking. I was like, so maybe he he calls them on the radio, says, hey, can you call her and let her know to call me on this payphone, because I'm over here. But that happens in the span of a minute. That's off to me because there's no, like she gets the, she pages him, he radios in, they call her. All of that is going to take longer than a minute. Yeah. I'm sure, you know, you, it's probably fuzzy on, on the times. But it's then it's cause it's only seven minutes later that he is radioing in. that He's going to check on the stall vehicle. Yeah. Now, the distance from that civilian recreation area to where his vehicle was found, which is presumably where he he called that in, although it could have been even closer, um, which which we'll talk about when we talk about the scene. But, um, I mean, you're talking five minutes or less drive time. So... I, you know, it's it's conceivable, I, I guess, that, you know, um, she paged him at 8 o'clock and, you know, between 8 o'clock and 8.01, you know, he calls on the radio. I do believe there's evidence that he did call over the radio and let them know that he was in the civilian recreation area. Um, so that that could have been, you know, when he said, 
have her call this number. Now, on the timeline, it says that uh, the girlfriend received a message from the MP desk, asked Paul mm-hmm. Langford at the Civilian Recreation Area payphone. That's not actually mm-hmm. what the message was. The message was the MP desk called her and said, call Langford at the following phone number. The investigation revealed that that phone number is the payphone at the Civilian Recreation Area. So he, she calls him, which is weird. Why? Because if he's over there, why doesn't he just call her when he gets the page? Yeah. I mean, the, the only plausible explanation I have for that is he had made so many payphone calls earlier that day that he didn't have any more. Quarters he didn't have any money. Yeah. But, but you can call collect. Yeah. And the guy that's, <laughs> you know, a single guy that's, you know, got four or five women on the hook and a date with two of them in a few minutes. Yeah. Probably ought to plan ahead and have a pocket full of quarters. So that that does seem weird to me that that instead of him getting a page and he's at the civilian recreation area and just uh, why doesn't he do what he did every other time that day and just and just make the call put a quarter in the phone and call her instead of I mean it seems like the whole reason for getting a pager was so that he could make the call. not have to return to the office to make all these phone calls in front of his coworkers. Once he had the pager, right. he could be more secret. He did, you know, he could be on patrol and oh, somebody paged me. I'll do a run through the parking lot at the PX, jump out, get on the payphone real quick, and no one knows the difference. But now he's calling and telling him his business because he's telling them. Call me over. Tell her to call me over here. I'm going to have to give you her phone number too. Yeah, for you to call her. That seems really, really off to me. That, that it, it's a break from the routine that you see the rest of the day. It is. That has. I've been looking at that today, and I'm like, this just bugs me. Like at first, it was, how did this sequence of events happen so fast? And I don't. And now, especially knowing that the car was five minutes away, I'm like, okay, really? They now it's even more off. But and so there's no he radios in after he has this apparently very brief conversation and says he's going to check on this stalled vehicle. But there's no proof there was actually a vehicle there, right? No. Because he didn't pick up the guy that was riding along with him to begin with. He doesn't come back. He doesn't, right? He doesn't pick him back up to patrol within that afternoon, kind of like on as a trainee thing. Um, no, he doesn't. And I guess maybe what stood out to me about it was like, I've just been stuck on the time thing. It all happening so fast. And now like seeing, okay, he's over here by this stalled vehicle you know, was he even at the number that she was told to call as in whoever was at the desk that called and told her like, they, Oh, call this number for him. Like, was he even over there? Yeah. And then because he's out, you know, patrolling. So there, there is a story that you guys may have run across in the media 
I think it was mentioned on on another podcast even. But um, it's nowhere in the reports. I have, haven't found any evidence of it. But there's a story that at the beginning of the shift that Chad and all the MPs were told not to go into the southern area of the base, which is where the recreation area is and, and ultimately where he, he was shot. They were told not to go in there that day? They were told not not to patrol down there. That's interesting. Why? There's no reason. Yeah given which makes me kind of doubt that and and i mean the only the only time i've i'm familiar with being anyone being told not to go not to patrol in a certain area was um you know when, when we had physically shut down some of the roads on camp lejeune because there was there was live fire from artillery and stuff that was passing over the roads so i mean you Oh, yeah, you really don't want people passing through there. Yeah. <laughs> Any other time, I, don't, I cannot remember one instance of of even hearing about uh, MPs being told, you don't patrol, don't patrol somewhere. You don't patrol over here. So it was like a permanent don't patrol over here, not just like a don't patrol here today. Um, the, the way I read it, it, it was, it was, for that night, it was that shift. Like that's weird. You know, they're having their little powwow before everyone goes out and does their their thing for the shift, and the the desk sergeant or whoever is like, "Up, oh, and we have a special order for tonight. Do not do not patrol the southern area of the base." Like I said, it's not in the reports. I can't verify it. And the southern area you're saying is where that recreation area was and where this allegedly stalled vehicle was yes yep that's interesting that is very interesting so he radios in so in this very quick eight o'clock phone call i had to think about it again 807 he radios in he's checking on this stalled vehicle yeah just i mean a few minutes later less than five are they trying to, or we're assuming that's estimated. Are they like, why, why is it like all hands on deck? Nobody's answering. Are they radioing him? On, does, is that how it normally happens? Would it be that quick? Um, I, I would say that that's a pretty fair estimation. And, and I actually think that this is one part of the Unsolved Mystery show from 90, 1993 that, that I, think they, I think they probably got this right. So Langford radios the desk that he's checking on a stalled vehicle. But that's all he told them. And protocol, even today, is you make a traffic stop, you call in location, tag number, vehicle description, number of occupants. He didn't say any of that. He just said, I'm checking on a stalled vehicle. And he didn't say abandoned vehicle. Right. And that was it. So. So that's why they kept saying, send your 28. Yeah. Send your location. Okay. That makes more sense. And I mean, and, and, you know, it's probably a more relaxed environment than, you know, Montgomery Police Department or a Sheriff's Department is, you know, but I would imagine that at some point, 
fairly quickly, a minute, two minutes, three minutes tops, that radio guy was on the radio because he knew that if he didn't document everything he was supposed to document about a traffic stop, that he was going to get in trouble. So he's on the radio at least once trying to raise Langford and get that additional information. As soon as Langford doesn't respond to that, that's weird. And any good dispatcher is is going to send back up. Like I, like I mentioned early on in our talk with military police, if, if the radio guy calls you and you don't answer, that just became the highlight of the week. And anybody that can afford to suddenly make their way there is going to do it. Mm. Um, so that's, that's what started that. Now, on, on the base, there, there are kind of, kind of two entities. So there's, there's the military police guys like Langford. And then there is also a civilian guard force. What is, what is a civilian guard force? I mean, I imagine it sounds, it is exactly what it sounds like, but what, what's the difference between the two? Um, they are not. Is that like front, front gate? Yeah. Like a lot of times nowadays you on base, you'll pull up to the gate and it's not actually an MP there. That's, it's a security guard basically. Mm. So yeah. it, it's, it's kind of like that. They apparently had a, a roving patrol as well. And, and my understanding is the reason for that, that kind of duality is the high volume of civilian contract employees that work on the base. And I, I don't know how much better I can explain, Yeah, you know, why, why that would be necessary, but um, it's, it's, to me, it's not unheard of. If you've got a lot of government contractors, these, these are civilians. They have, they have an ID card and, you know, reasonable purpose to be on and off base, maybe even at strange hours. Mm-hmm. But in a lot of cases, they are leasing large buildings and warehouse space and stuff from the government. So that's kind of a no man's land, I guess. Mm-hmm. It's still on base. The MP still have jurisdiction, but you may or may not want, you know, an armed active duty police officer patrolling your 60,000 foot square foot warehouse. I'm speculating here. I don't know why they would. I I only encountered that at larger bases, but I was, it was a different. So is this going to be their, the civilian um, security force? They're going to be involved with pulling over one of those vehicles, right? Yes. Okay. And I, okay, so I guess just walk us through what they, he calls us in, they send out this all hands on deck. Somebody's got to find him somewhere because he's not responding. Yes. Um, and, and so that happened at approximately 8, 10 PM, 2010. Um, about five minutes later at 8, 15 PM, the desk sergeant called in an off duty military police sergeant, um, because at this point Langford was missing and 
and this was kind of an all hands on deck thing. So this this desk sergeant, you know, he, he's not going to sit in the station and wait to hear how this how this goes down. He's he's the guy in charge. So he called the off duty guy to come take his spot, basically, like at the desk, so that he could go out to help. Yeah, that's that's gotcha. my impression of that. Um, that would make sense. Yeah. And while that sergeant was on the way to the station, he heard on the radio that they had found Langford and Langford had been shot. So instead of going to the MP station like he was supposed to, this sergeant went to the scene. Uh, okay. So now <laughs> oh, is that why I think I've gone back and forth like three times now. Okay. So so at so at around eight eight seventeen PM the uh the radio operator left the station as well to go and search. And on the way, um it's basically a, a straight shot one road from from the MP station. The MP station is less than a block off of Patton Road and Langford was found on Patton Road. I forget how many miles, but it's a straight shot. So the uh, the radio operator actually left the station to join the search, and on Patton Road, he stops a vehicle. There was actually two. There was the radio operator, and there was another MP vehicle, like back-to-back. And they're running lights and siren going down uh, Patton Road. and one of the vehicle, one of the patrol cars kept going. The other one turned around and stopped this guy and, and just asked him, have you seen any other MP vehicles? And the guy's like, no, you know, I, you're the first vehicle I saw at all since I left. He was a contractor and he worked late that night. And he said, I, you're the first vehicles that I saw, you know, since I left the office. Um, and uh, and that's the end of that conversation. And the radio operator gets back and, and follows. There's nothing documenting it, but being that the radio operator left the station and... Who's there to document it? Yeah. And there's another MP car, you know, either in front of him or directly behind him that did not stop. I have to wonder if that other vehicle was the desk sergeant who had also just left the police station. That, that would make sense. Like, because you would think, obviously this is a very serious, very abnormal situation because they've literally taken their operator now out of there because, and let's hope nothing else happens. Um, you don't know whether he has shot himself or somebody else has shot him. So why would you leave? Wouldn't, it make more sense for both vehicles to stop. But why would they stop? Why would they stop that car anyway? Because if this is the case, why is the right, why is the operator saying, have you seen any other vehicles? They already know where they're going because he's been found. Yeah. So why would he, why would they stop this random car? And I'll go back and review the timeline on that too. Um, just to make sure that, because with those approximate okay. times, you know, I'm, I'm kind of, I'm inserting some kind of just speculation in there, like kind of what makes the most sense. 
but guesstimate. so here, here's the other thing I'll say though. So this was 1992 and in 1992, 93, part of my, part of my work was at a civilian ambulance company in Montgomery. I was on the ambulance, but I picked up a lot of my overtime hours working night shift dispatch. And we had, we were on rotation for 911 calls. There were, there was one other ambulance company in Montgomery then. And so every other 911 call that needed an ambulance, we got called and, and sent out on those. But we only had a limited number of people. You know, you can't have a, you know, 20 EMTs and paramedics just hanging out, hoping you get that many 911 calls. So on occasion, we would have instances where I didn't have any more vehicles available and I'd get a 911 call or I'd get, you know, some other call that I needed to send an ambulance. And the reason I'm telling you all of this is, is this, it was not uncommon and was not difficult to pull off for me to get in an ambulance and continue to be the dispatcher while I was on the road. So just reroute the calls? We had an ambulance station in Watumpka, Alabama, which is right outside of Montgomery. I would forward the phones to Watumpka, and Watumpka could answer the phone call, and if it pertained to Montgomery, they could radio me. That's how we did that. Well, maybe they maybe they did that then in this instance. Or, well, they also called in this off-duty guy. Yeah. He would have been there to answer. It still bugs me that the desk sergeant left. Yeah, that that's the yeah, that's the person in us that says you're not supposed to do those things. <laughs> yeah, like that. You're the top. Which I get. Okay, offset. You're the top guy. You probably should be there, um, because this is one of your people. But at the same time, if you're gonna completely. If protocol was once you know he's been found, you're supposed to go back. But you have now also sent your dispatcher out there. Wouldn't you yeah, go back? I, you know, I think the plan would have worked if the off-duty sergeant that he called in had gone to the station like he was told to. Mm-hmm. But he didn't. But he, he didn't? Went, he went to the scene. Yeah. Where'd he go? Oh, my God. I thought he's been at the station the whole time. Oh, no, no. So he, he gets the call. He gets dressed. He gets in his car to go to the station. And on the way to the station, he hears on the radio that Langford's been shot. And he makes his own executive decision to oh. go to the scene. <laughs> okay, so nobody's at the oh, station. Oh, my then. God. I, I thought I had my sergeants confused. And I thought they called in the off-duty guy. He came in to, like, cover while they were gone, even though technically he's off-duty. And that when the it, the call comes in that he's been found, the desk sergeant should have returned back, sent him, he would have been going to medical. But instead, he just was like, I'm not going back to the station. I'm just going to go secure the scene. But now it's even more weird because the off-duty guy didn't go. He just went straight out there. If you... Keep close, following yeah. Patton Road south of Buxton. It makes a sharp turn going west. 
Okay. That's where he was found. Interesting. Okay, where is uh, what's Buxton by? Is it like one of those you got to be zoomed in really close to um, see? It? No. Oh wait, no, I just yeah. found it. Okay. Holy crap! That's kind of. I mean, maybe, maybe it's not in the grand scheme, but like, is that not? No, that's not, not that close to the center, right? It's almost to the Tennessee River. Yeah. And all of that, all of that is. Oh yeah. Part of the Absolutely. base. And still is today. Because, so, you know how um, building numbers are on base? You have areas that mm-hmm. are basically block numbers. So that that area where he was found is the, is it the 8,500 area? It, uh, yeah, I was just going to say, yeah. But all of, all of that area south of Buxton Road, is the bunkers explosive storage, storage yeah, and all just, of that. I was wondering what that was. Yeah, it looked like they were bunkers, yeah. but and now, now that I'm zooming in, you can kind of see it. I was wondering what that was. Yeah. So that's uh that's why there's not a lot of buildings and you know activity down there because I mean if something catastrophic happens, that whole place is gonna be a big crater. Yeah. There's actually a testing area down there too, some type of testing, probably rockets and stuff like that. Interesting. I bet that's what they test. <laughs> um, so it's not like there's not housing down here. It's not like there would be a reason to be traffic there. coming yeah. right. Not right. no through traffic really. And at that time, you would think that probably there's not anybody really working either um, unless there's like some, something going on, mm-hmm. some planned something. When they get to the scene, we've talked about that all these, everybody's, everybody's there. Apparently. What did they, what do they find? They found him and they, he's, they've said he's shot, but tell us about the scene because it's kind of weird. It, it is. And it's even weirder when you pull, the newspaper articles that first came out because the spokesman for Redstone Arsenal said things to the press that do not match what's in the report. And there were other stories coming out that the press was picking up that don't match the report. So what the report says is that they found Langford laying on his side outside of the driver's side of, of his patrol vehicle. He had been shot in the head. The The vehicle was running. The hazard lights were on. The lanyard for his pistol was loosely tied around his both ankles. The cord from the radar unit in the car had been pulled out and was loosely tied around his neck. His hat was stuffed in his mouth, and the weapon was under his left shoulder. He also had his handcuffs, a black pair of handcuffs, that were on his left wrist, but not his right. So it was, you know, one cuff was on his left. Um, it was not double locked. And initially, that's that's pretty much all they all they noted. 
So they got there. That's what they saw. And they started. He was still alive. They called for an ambulance. They started trying to, to comfort him, uh, you know, do what they could for him. They ended up tearing his BDU shirt open to get access to him um, to start CPR or whatever life-saving measures they started. The ambulance got there, they loaded him up and, and took him to Huntsville Hospital. So about 90 minutes after they found him is when they pronounced him dead, but that's, that's on the timeline. I think it was 2040 they actually pronounced him. The, the death sergeant was there at the hospital, and he's the one that notified CID that an officer had been killed. In addition to this, they found his radio, his MP armband. If you, if you think about you've probably seen old movies or pictures where the MPs actually wore like a, a black leather thing around their one shoulder that said MP mm-hmm. on it. So they found his radio, his armband, and his military police ID. It was about a quarter of a mile away from where they found him. And where they found that was actually in the intersection, but it's it's the road you would turn off of Patton Road to get to the recreation area. So the intersection of Patton Road and Rayford Road is where they found those items. They were in the middle of the intersection, neatly organized. The radio was standing upright. No scratches on any of it. Nothing that looks like it was thrown out of a window and just miraculously landed right side up. It was, those things were deliberately staged in the middle of that intersection. So where's his car? His car is back where he's at? Yeah. Because he's found outside of his car. And Rafer Road, if I'm looking at the right one, yeah, like it's basically a U. It connects in two spots on Patton Road. And then that's kind of where Patton Road ends, right? Yeah. As far that that's the corner where Rayford Road is right below that. That's like the end of Patton Road because right. then it turns into Pershing on the other side. God, he really is at like the bottom of this place. So if, if you're still looking at Google Maps, mm-hmm. where, where Patton Road makes that sharp turn mm-hmm. headed west, mm-hmm. There's a gravel road that goes back north, mm-hmm. and then there's a another intersection with a gravel road that goes north and kind of southeast. Mm-hmm. That's where his car was found. Is that intersection based on the on the distance described in the report? I put the location where they found the radio and stuff as the the northernmost portion of Rayford Road. So just thinking about we got the times and those aren't estimated times that we have on the sheet. So he has a limited amount of time between the time that he makes this phone call at the rec center, then radios in that this stalled car, not abandoned car, not any the fact that it was stalled car makes me think there were people there. Because if nobody was in it, wouldn't he have said it was an abandoned car? Yeah. Stalled car makes me think it was somebody trying to fix a car. You know, they're either got the hood up or like trying to crank it, whatever. Stalled car makes me think somebody's there. And 
now his stuff's over here on the side of the road. But just if this, but nobody saw this car. So we don't know because it's not still there. He would have had to go put this stuff down first over here and then go to where he's at, where he's found. Right. He would have had to put his stuff down first in the road. Yep. And I double checked the report. It, it literally says, um, he notified the military police desk that he was checking a stalled vehicle. So not abandoned, a stalled vehicle. We were just talking about this statement analysis that you have to believe what's written. Like you got to take it for what's in there. And I mean, stalled vehicle because people don't want to lie about stuff, which I don't know that that stands true here because he obviously told a bunch of tall tales. Um, it just makes me think there was a vehicle and there were people there. So it says at the time that Langford made his last radio transmission, all available military police and security police patrols were dispatched to the Southern area of Redstone Arsenal. Additionally, all outbound traffic was stopped at the gate in an effort to stop any potential suspect from leaving Redstone Arsenal. There were no suspects stopped by military police or security police patrols while searching the southern area of Redstone Arsenal for Langford. Likewise, there were no suspects identified leaving Redstone Arsenal during the time that outbound traffic was stopped at all gates. But they just said, so it says at the time he made his last radio transmission, they dispatched all military police to the southern. How did they know where he was? Only because he had indicated that he was at, at the civilian recreation area just minutes before. Uh, but sorry. here's the problem I have with that. that. So he calls in and says, hey, I'm, I'm checking out a stalled vehicle. Well, according to what I just read, they imme- their immediate reaction to that was send everyone for a stalled vehicle. That I don't. That's been my problem all along is why would they react that way? Yeah. And and close the gate that at all. That happened after they found him. That would make sense. Even I would I would accept that like I like I laid out before. He says I'm checking on a stalled vehicle. Good to go. They they ask, you know, what's your location? Give me the tag number, description, so on and so forth, and he doesn't answer, then they would send backup. That makes sense to me. But not would it still be all available? <laughs> it's not all available, and you don't close all outbound gates because a guy's not answering his radio. Yeah. And and they're d- talking about suspects. Why would they automatically yes. assume if if this is the deal that they immediately he at the time of his transmission they send they dispatch everybody close the gate because they're looking for suspects how why why are they automatically looking for suspects yeah uh, because that, they don't know that he's been shot at this point right and that's that's why I. Either it's lost in the translation because this is a summary report or somebody's Monday morning quarterback in this 
because that makes zero sense. No. What, the only thing that makes sense is sending all hands and closing the gates when you find out that an officer has been shot. Yeah. Once you find that, you absolutely do that. But I bring that up because, like I said, when I send you my, the map, I've got all the gates indicated to include the gates that are closed. Like, you can't use them at all. Mm -hmm. And in the notes, I've got what their hours are. Is there a um, gate that's not closed? Well, I mean, I'm, I'm going to assume that they're correct. Oh. And they closed all outbound gates. But to get to a gate to leave, is a 15 minute drive easy well you're looking There's at the, you're like way back in the secure area of the base if you're down here you don't just yeah. happen to drive through here because you drove on base to get to the px right and so they say they didn't stop anyone in that area did and, they stop them in other the, areas <laughs> they did they stopped and we talked about oh, they did stop them the, yeah they, that there were actually two vehicles that were stopped while this cluster was going on. The other guy that they stopped, he told them that he was coming back from his, his job off base. He was military, but he had a second job. And they, they stopped him just because this was going on. He wasn't speeding or doing anything mm -hmm. else. They stop him. You know, what are you doing? I'm coming home from work. Um, and I decided to drive around the base and cool off a little bit before I went home because before I went to work, me and my wife had an argument. And they that was apparently enough for them to determine that they didn't need to detain him right then. But the MP took his ID card. And told him, you can go, you can come down to the MP station tomorrow morning and get your ID card back. And the idea there was they didn't have time to collect all of his information right there, which I wouldn't necessarily agree with, but whatever. But when he showed up at the station to pick up his military ID the next morning, the desk, desk sergeant would absolutely get his information. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Came in the next morning picked up his ID card. They never wrote down anything about him. Seriously? Had no idea who he was in uh, up until the time of the first report. By July 10th of 92, they had no idea who that guy was. Do they know now? They do know now, and he has been interviewed. And so by November, 5 November, they interviewed him. Um, and the, the way they found him was because of the news, the media sharing the story. Because like any decent troop, when MPs took his military ID card, he knew that he couldn't, that covering that up was not a good idea. So he drove to his sergeant major's house and told on himself, <laughs> told his sergeant major, hey, here's what happened. Told him the same story he told the MPs and, and told him, MPs stopped me and they took my ID and I've got to go to the station tomorrow and get it. 
And the sergeant major's like, all right, thanks for letting me know. Go do it. And in November, October, November, this sergeant major sees all this stuff in the news about Langford. And he calls the MPs and he's like, hey, I think I know who the guy is you're looking for. Um, By that time, he had transferred to the base that was my last duty station, Indian Head, Maryland. He was at the EOD school. And uh, they, they sent a CID agent from Fort Belvoir to Indian Head to interview him. And, and it all checked out. Next week, please join in with Michael, Sellers, and Stormy for the conclusion of this three-part episode delving into the puzzling circumstances surrounding Chad Langford's death. If you have any information related to the death of Specialist Langford, please contact Army CID Redstone Arsenal Resident Unit at 256-876-7592 or 256-876-2037. Or you may submit an anonymous tip on the CID's P3 Tips website, which will be linked in the episode description. You can also contact Echo 7 Foxtrot's confidential tip line via phone or text message at 205-282-0740 or by email at tips at echo7foxtrot.com. Since Alabama Cold Case Advocacy's creation, we have dedicated innumerable hours to researching and networking in an effort to provide the largest platform we can to the cases we share. We shoulder all associated expenses with Alabama Cold Case Advocacy out of our own pocket, including the subscription fees for researching and production of the Unforgotten podcast to provide a cost-free avenue for the victims' families of those cases. We hope you will join in our efforts to raise awareness of Alabama's missing and murdered and support these families who have been forced to carry the immeasurable loss of their loved ones and the fight for answers. If you appreciate our mission and you are inspired to make a donation, your extra support will enable the ACCA to continue our research, share the cold cases, and help those families know that they are also unforgotten. Unforgotten is an Alabama cold case advocacy podcast recorded in conjunction with Riverside FM, hosted and distributed by Spotify for podcasters, available on your favorite podcast platform. Intro music for the show was created by Principles of Uncertainty, who also mixed and mastered this episode. Content and production is by Sellers and Stormy. Artwork by Sellers. Credits for music, sound clips, special mentions, and any source referenced in our podcast can be found in each episode's description. We hope you will join us on all the major social media sites and continue to raise awareness of our Alabama cold cases. Until next time, thank you for listening, and remember, justice may be delayed, but the victims and their families remain unforgotten.